rumors swirling everywhere. I saw Laker fans making a big whoop that Russ's wife started following Anthony Davis and LeBron James on Instagram. And then they followed her back. Is that the bat signal? Is Russ coming to Los Angeles? Back home? Or maybe it's just a train. That boy, Alchemy, the rudest in the game. This is the Hezzy, June 30th, Wednesday, episode 96. I kid, I kid, I kid. I, I, I had to start it off with a little bit of spice. But, you know, in today's social media era, any little thing, right? We, we, the, the, us media folk or whoever covers the league, we're taking in, we're running with it, right? So, but yeah, I, I saw the rumor Westbrook maybe to the Lakers. That would be, that would be real interesting as the, I guess the Schroeder role, right? But how do you, that doesn't, it doesn't even make sense, right? Because then you're taking the ball out of LeBron's hands, right? Russ has to have the ball in his hands. Well, you're going to spot him up in the corner. I don't know about that one. I do want to address the other aggressive rumor that I'm seeing out there when it comes to the Warriors right now. The number seven pick in Wiseman to Toronto for Pascal Siakam in his itty bitty bag. Some people even have the Warriors throwing in the 14th pick. And I think one thing that we all fall for, we see like a rumor, right? And you see it on Instagram, you see it on Twitter, and you see like 20 different places reporting it. And It kind of makes us feel like it adds validity to the rumor when in actuality it was just somebody spitballing, one person, one source. And it doesn't sound like it was based off anything. But people were asking me how I felt about that. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, what is Pascal Siakam's health status? He had left shoulder surgery in early June that's going to sideline him till November. Torn labrum. Shoulders are spooky, man. Shoulders are scary. And in the 90s, that really could have altered his career. I think if you look at recent history, you know, guys have bounced back from that. Paul George had it done on both shoulders. Kobe had it done. Dwight. So I think that the the science is getting better with that repairing of the labrums. I think the question is, how severe was it, right? Because there's such variances and nuance to each injury in a tear. If you're the Warriors doctors, if you could look at the imaging pre-surgery and post-surgery and you green light him, you say, hey, he's going to be fine, right? He'll be ready by November. Yeah, I'd do the trade. Wiseman and seven for Siakam? I would. I'm not telling you something you don't know here, but the problem is the salary doesn't match. In order to make this work, you've got to send back Wiggins or Draymond, right? Now the Warriors may get another piece back to, to fully match the salaries, but you can't just send Wiseman and his rookie deal for Siakam, who's on a max. You'd have to send back Wiggins as well. And then all of a sudden, nah, now, 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 hell no. Nah. I don't even know if I'd trade Wiggins for Siakam straight up. Some may bring up Kelly Oubre. Look, I don't think Tsunami is looking to settle down in the north with a sign and trade. I don't like it when you consider you have to throw in one of our main cogs as well. I get people not wanting to wait on Wiseman. The reality of it is he's two or three years away from seeing what he really is going to be. And Steph, Dre, and Clay don't have that time. That's the theory behind it. I understand it. I support the move given we get the right pieces back. But when you gotta when you gotta give Wiggins back or Draymond back, now it becomes much more of a lateral step. It doesn't necessarily make you better overall as a team. So that's my feeling on that, wherever that proposed trade came from. 
I hate to see Scottie Pippen like this. One of my favorite players growing up. By now, you've probably heard he's out marketing his book as well as a bourbon. <laughs> Did you The Dan Patrick interview, you got to go see it. It's about 18 minutes, man. Pip looks, I know he probably just took his braids out is what it looks like, but he's looking crazy on there. He's like, you know, I'm a boozer. He, he, he ain't, he's being super transparent. He's got a bourbon coming out with his ugly ass big hand on it. I don't know, you know, what type of marketing that is. It's called Digits, I believe, and then a, a tell-all book. And so it, it, it appears Scotty's still trying to pay off that 747. <laughs> but uh, the headline is, he called Phil Jackson a racist. He also said that Michael Jordan was pandering and playing to the cameras during, you know, the Kerr shot and, and just a whole, just calling it disingenuous, just spewing a whole lot of shit. Now, you do remember the Phil incident when he was in New York where he referred to LeBron and his posse. There was a little bit of a, a thing about that a few years ago, but you'd have to imagine Phil Jackson throughout his playing career and his coaching career, this probably would have come up from another player at some point if it were to be true, right? Personally, when I'm dealing with someone from that generation, someone who was around in those times, I'm usually going to give them a pass on some of their wording. Of course, using context, right? If there's some venom behind it, then it, it doesn't really matter what words you're using. It's your intention. But if you notice some, some old timers and Phil at this point is an old timer. What he's in his 70s, right? They may use the word coloreds or, you know, some stuff that's just been programmed into them from their youth. And so, again, what's the context? And I tend to, because living out here in Arizona, there's a lot of old people, right? A lot of snowbirds and old folks. And I've I've had old people approach me hooping at the gyms and stuff. And they may use like some some word like that, but I I also the energy, the vibe of it is like, you know, that's it's it's not offensive. That's just how it is what it is. And that's my view on it. Again, the context is needed. So I don't know. I don't know. But Pip is is being outlandish. It looks like he needs a lot of sales. And then obviously he's still very salty about the last dance and how he was betrayed. You know, I think the funny thing is he's kind of been trying to say how selfish Jordan is. But in turn, he's kind of showing how selfish he is. Right. Especially that last shot incident. That's where the Phil Jackson thing. He basically called Phil Jackson racist for giving the shot up to Tony Kukoc. Right. And and Dan Patrick did kind of bait it out of him. But he was like, hey, yeah, if that's what you want to hear, that's what, that's what, how I feel. And so it kind of just shows how selfish he is not realizing that uh, that, yeah, just because you 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 haven't earned that shot. We're trying to win as a team. But I, I don't want to go too far into it. Um, I think what I'd say about this is for Pippen, I think maybe he needs to look at it from a different perspective, because it seems like he's walking around asking the question to people, well, what would Mike have been without me? But in reality, maybe he should be asking, what would I have been without Mike? And there's no doubt he would have been a real nice player. But let's be honest, Mike pushed Scotty to another level. And I'm not sure he realizes that aspect of it. Yeah, Pip, you would have been an NBA player regardless, maybe even an all-star, right? But Jordan took it to another level, being around that intensity and that asshole every day. You know, you may not have liked it, but I think you need to appreciate it a little more. That's my perspective on Scotty. I hope he holds it together, though. I hope he holds it together. And I'm I'm waiting for the book. Not so much the bourbon, though. Suns Clippers game five. If you're interested in the full take, there's a full breakdown on my patron of it. Uh, good one. Good one. A lot of details. 
You saw what the Clippers did, right? They waited to announce that Zubat was out until the last possible minute so the Suns couldn't game plan for a small ball lineup. They start Marcus Morris at the five, and that unlocked him, right? What he starts, six of six, seven of seven? And it was causing matchup problems in transition because I think what you saw was DeAndre Ayton had grown accustomed to being able to just track and trot with Zubat up and down the court, right? But Morris was sprinting the floor and catching book in the block, right? With the small ball lineup. One thing that that does is because there's so many like-sized players on the floor for the Clippers, in transition and defense, when you've got to just pick people up and scramble, the Suns, they were unsure of who to pick up because, again, all the players were the same size. When you've got a traditional lineup, right, it's very easy. Aiton's got to go find Zubat, right? You got to, it's easier to match up. And with all these, you know, wings on the floor, you saw the Suns get discombobulated in transition early, as well as the paint being opened with no true center. And you saw the Clippers strike real quick. Bang, bang, layup, layup, layup. And then Morris was going like he was damn near prime Carl Malone. But I think really what also set off the hot start for the Clippers was dropping into that zone. That zone in the first six minutes of the game it really did its job because it threw the Suns off. And you saw about halfway through the first, right, They the Suns reset their rhythm to attack the zone. And then they started spraying the threes. It was just a mental adjustment to your rhythm. Swing, swing, shoot. You got to be ready to shoot in a zone. You can't start diagnosing. You're not. There's nothing to read. When it gets swung to the weak side, you pull it. So they climbed back in it after that slow start. I thought the three ball to end the half was a big shot from Devin Booker, right? He cut it from 10 to 7. And it was like, all right, they're climbing back in it. They're going to get this done. And then midway through the third, you saw Chris Paul get a toe to the taint. Landed on Pat Beverly's foot. I'm not going to lie. I, I I was dying. I fell off the couch laughing. <laughs> me and my daughter. Um, You know, he did it to himself, man. It reminds me years ago when he was a clipper. Speaking of shoulders and hurt shoulders, Chris Paul, I believe he was out for the rest of the year. Chris Paul several times has hurt himself flopping. You would think he would have learned the lesson by now, and we've seen it over and over. He is willing to sell his body out in order to get the call. Instead of protecting yourself on the fall, he flails and lands basically, in a lot of times, the worst position possible in order to get the whistle, and it's cost him a lot of times. Thankfully, everybody was all right off that flop the other night, and we can laugh about it because I thought Beverly was lucky he didn't break his ankle. If Paul didn't land on his foot, it would have probably been some sort of tailbone situation like we saw with Steph this year. So thankfully it was all right. But if you rewatch the play, I know people want to accuse Beverly of being dirty and rightfully so given his history. But if you rewatch the play, that wasn't the case at all. Beverly was trying to shoot the gap and turn the corner because Chris Paul usually comes off those screens, turns the corner and gets to the mid range. Beverly didn't think he was pulling up. Paul anticipated him shooting it and then flailed up into the air and, and had that bad landing. I'm burying the lead, though, because the story is Paul George and his redemption run. 20 points in that third quarter. He finished with 41. He's leading the playoffs in minutes and points. You know, some of my patrons and I, we were talking about how we've all come full circle with him. First you love him, then you hate him, then you love him again. I know, it's the fickle fans. We are, we are. You know, one thing, though, I think at this stage in his career I was talking about in the breakdown, he doesn't elevate like he used to, but in turn, he's almost become a more effective finisher. And what you see him do better than almost anyone is 
his ability to change pace in his gather and his one-two step, right? It almost looks like he's traveling at times. I think he got away with one in that game five, but the way he can change pace and change direction and rhythm in his steps to the rim, it really throws off any potential shot blockers and it allows him to get the whistle and get the angle. And so the Clippers run away with that thing late. Reggie Jackson, a couple big dagger threes and a big dunk. And we still have ourselves a series. We just wonder if Kawhi is going to become a part of the series. That might drastically change things. So last night, Hawks and Bucks. It was interesting. In the intro, they were having these little sound bites of, of the Hawks players, right? And they asked Kevin Herter about Trey Young. And he goes, at this point, he's our best player. I thought that was very telling because one, I think it shows you how confident he is in himself. And I also think it means how loaded this young Hawks team with Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter. Now, to be fair, the reality of it is, is Trey Young is probably going to be their best player for the next 10 years, right? But just the mindset of a young Kevin Herter and these other guys, I think they all believe in themselves and they all know how much talent they have. To be honest, when I turned on the game, I was shocked that there was no Trey Young. I really was. I thought he would give it a go. And, you know, Steph had a similar injury. I believe it was in Boston this year because when you wear those heavy ankle braces, what happens is when you turn the ankle over, the brace digs into the top of your foot and you actually hurt your foot, not your ankle. And it sounds like that's what's happened with Trey. And so the the pain level, I guess, just was intolerable with the bruised foot. And so he was a no-go. Well, the game starts and you saw a full Ewing effect at play. The Hawks start the game 10-2. And you know what, man? To me, and this is not the greatest time to bring this up, given off what happened last night, but the Bucs are innately soft. That's the nature of the Bucs. And you've seen it over and over again. When forced, they can come out like beasts, right? When, when their hand is forced for a game or two, elimination time, they can look like beasts. But it has to be forced. Their baseline, their, their nature is not tough. And maybe soft is strong, but it ain't tough, right? It's somewhere in between. And for instance, last year's Lakers, they were just naturally dogs. They'd come out on a Tuesday night in Orlando and bully the fuck out of the Magic just for no reason, just because that was their baseline. And you really like to see that when it comes to championship teams. I'd probably say the same thing about this Nets team this year when uh, when they were healthy, right? They'd come out and just roll a team for no reason. That was their baseline. And it really is the role players that really help define that trait in a team. Of course, you're going to pay attention to the stars and who they are. They set the tone. But the role players, the guys that fill it in, really set that trait in a team and define that trait, in my opinion. And you saw it again with the Lakers and Caruso and KCP and Dwight and, and how they did that, right? And I think the Bucks knew this. Look at who they added to their roster this year. Bobby Portis, PJ. They were trying to add Bogdanovich. Rough riders, dudes that would bring that mentality night in and night out. It still feels like this team isn't that. But I'll tell you what, man, this game was far more exciting than I thought it was, despite the unfortunate events, just because I was like, Chris Dunn, Chris Dunn. I didn't even know he was still in the league. Nate McMillan brings out Chris Dunn. And then how about Cam Reddish just balling? Cam Reddish was dogging the fuck out of Chris Middleton. I knew he was going to be nice, man. I knew he was going to be nice coming out of Duke. I was just such a good draft for the Hawks and Travis Slank when they when they pulled that out because wasn't see now I'm forgetting I, I probably don't want to mess this up and say this but I feel like they gave New Orleans Jackson Hayes and then they got Cam I don't know how they did it man but 
Cam Reddish had a huge impact on that game, and he looks like a problem for Chris Middleton. He really does. His length, his athleticism, and it looks like he's buying into being a defensive stopper, a real 3 and D wing. You saw Nkongawu continuing to ball. There was a nice little move he made where he hit a jump stop and then he pivoted off to the left and finished. And it was just real simple. You wouldn't really think about it, but in today's game, not a lot of big men have that fundamentals to go to their weak side like that and pivot off their right foot and finish with the left hand. Most young bigs are going to catch that ball and just try to elevate and, and use their athleticism. And so Akangu is fundamentally sound, very strong. And, you know, this Hawks team, man, they came out and I think there was also a little bit of a letdown from the Bucks, where when, when it was announced Trey wasn't going, they, again, they innately let their guard down. And then, of course... It happens. Giannis goes down, the knee buckles. How tough is Giannis? How tough is Giannis, man? If <laughs> if that was LeBron, they would have opened up the top of the arena for a chopper to come down and airlift him out of there. No, not the time to joke. Not the time to joke. But he, you know, just the fact that he got up and the way he dealt with it, and he, he's it was almost silly to an extent where he didn't want help from his brother. And then... The Bucks. I've been talking about it all series long, these little indicators that the organization isn't as buttoned up or as intelligent as they need to be. Somehow they let Giannis wander back to the bench? Yeah, man. I don't know. As of right now, I don't know the official news on it. It sounds like they think it's an ACL. And now the conversation is intensified about this condensed season and all the injuries. Look, I agree they're playing too many games. I have to cover it. I've, I've been swamped and exhausted from how how these games are stacked up on each other. I understand that, but I'm not so sure we can blame these injuries on it. The soft tissue ones, sure, right? Harden's hamstring. Cam Reddish was out with Achilles soreness, right? But Trey stepped on a foot. Kyrie, the same thing. Giannis's injury was freaky. AD's was freaky, was a big collision. What I think it is, is the way the game is being played in so much space. It's the three ball. It's the distance that players are having to close out and recover from in the three ball era. You look at someone like Anthony Davis or Giannis, they've got to close out to the three point line, turn around, come flying in for a rebound to protect the rim. And that momentum and that space, that distance that's covered with these leapers. I don't know. I just I don't I don't think that we can fully blame that. But that being said, the NBA's got to chill. You've got the Summer Olympics, and now they're talking about a, a, a mid-season tournament? I don't know, man. So, look, I'm not totally dis, dismissing the fact that they're playing all these games. They, there is an element of it. But a lot of the injuries to these stars, I don't know if you can point to that because they were things that are unavoidable. Collisions, dangerous plays. I hate to see it, man. But I'll, I'll say this. I think that it could ultimately end up being a blessing in disguise for Giannis to have a season off where he can get his release right and then perhaps develop a post move. It's going to slow him down for six months to a year where he's going to have to focus on the details and the fundamentals. Because I think we know enough about Giannis. We don't have to worry about his mental recovery, right? He's going to come back being Giannis. He's not, he's not going to lose confidence in himself. And so ultimately it could help him. Prayers out to Big G though. You know, he he is built different, literally and figuratively. So maybe it's just a hyperextension and, a, and a, a bone bruise. Either way, you don't expect to see him the rest of these playoffs. Tonight, game six 
in Los Angeles, Suns Clippers. I expect the Suns to come out and establish DeAndre Ayton early and often. I think they're going to try to get Marcus Morris off the floor. Some deep post catches get him in foul trouble. And then once he's off the floor, if Ty Lue's going to go to Boogie, then they'll start to cook him in the pick and roll. You'll see CP and Booker get loose coming downhill. The other thing that I think we need to keep our eye on is, as great as Paul George has been, much like Durant in that Bucks series, I think the legs are starting to go. Right, He's leading the playoffs in minutes. And I think you saw it in the fourth quarter of that game five where he was getting it done, but he was looking wobbly. He was looking wobbly. I don't know how much juice he has left in those legs to close out this series. So I expect the Suns to actually get it done here on the road in game six and advance to their first finals since what? The 93 season? This is The Hezzy brought to you by BasketballGods.net. I'm out, Joe.